Today's program has been brought to you by TechServe, New York's original and still the best Apple computer, iPod, and iPhone store and repair shop. For more information, visit TechServe.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. The Morning After, episode 52, back from Thanksgiving, full and happy. How are you, Gentolic? I am full, happy, and very fat. <laughs> I, I'm feeling that way as well. Um, I, had a, I had a great Thanksgiving. I actually went to uh, the sister restaurant of Terroir called Hearth. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. I have heard of it. <laughs> and it was fantastic. I've actually never gone out to dinner for Thanksgiving, so it was kind of a, a new... It's very New York. Very New York City moment, exactly. Um, on today's show... New York Times best-selling author of The 4-Hour Workweek, The 4-Hour Body, and now The 4-Hour Chef. Which, to clarify, is a total of 16 hours. That is Mr. Timothy Ferris. He's going to uh, explain to us the deal with the 4 hours. I don't think I've ever learned anything in 4 hours, which is, I don't know, it says a lot about me, but have you? Well, I went to, I, when I first moved to Brooklyn, my then roommate bought me um, a capoeira package, and I was supposed to go to this introductory weekend, uh, which was basically a four-hour day. It was broken up with one break, with one lunch break, but I made it 20 minutes because I vomited twice and went home. <laughs> <laughs> capoeira is like that dance dun, fight dun, thing, right? Dun, dun, dun. Yes, it's, da- it's dance fighting, Brazilian dance fighting. <laughs> If anyone, if anyone that plays Capoeira is listening to this right now, they're like, that is not what it is. It is a respectable mar- form of martial arts, which it is. It's actually very difficult and beautiful, but I couldn't, I couldn't make the cut. I probably went hungover, to tell you the truth. And everyone was wearing this like really intense like martial art workout gear, and I was wearing like pajama pants and a like, sports bra and like yesterday's mascara. So it did not end well. They, were already, they already picked you out of the lineup. They're like, going home. So if Tim up. Ferriss wants to pen the four-hour capoeirista, <laughs> I am down, buddy. I, I actually bet he does. And we'll talk about <laughs> that with him soon. I'm also on today's show, attorney, investor, and host of Heritage Radio Network's The Business of the Business, Phil Colicchio. Woo! Yeah, we'll chat with him about how a lawyer gets a start in the restaurant industry. And uh, if anyone out there is looking to open a, a restaurant of their own, he's got some advice for you as well but first one of our favorite favorite segments here on the morning after front of house with jen tullock good morning did your mind touch the void for a minute uh that as as you may know is from last week's segment uh where we we visited um we visited the now infamous New York Times review. Of Guy Fieri's. Of Guy Fieri's, uh, written by Mr. Pete Wells. Thank you, Pete. Um, we're, we've decided we're going to use that as the dame's calling card. Uh, by the dame, I mean the dame Joan Plowright, the Baroness Olivier, our favorite narrator of this segment. And so uh, with that, we would like to summon her from the caves of theater royalty with her calling. Dame, are you there? In 2007, I got my big break. I'd been working as a server at Restaurant X for a mere two weeks when I was approached by the owner and told we needed to talk. My bowels clenched immediately at the thought of a sit-down with owner X. What had I done? Was it the wine-stained t-shirt I'd worn three days in a row? Calling a trusted regular, hey buddy. As I quietly prepared to meet my end, owner X poured us both a glass of burgundy. We were sitting at the bar. It was 11 a.m. I'd like you to manage, she started, and I'd like you to start today. 
She was impeccably manicured and slightly drunk. She wore a green felt cape and sensible New England loafers. I imagined her for a moment, drinking her way through a charity ball in Connecticut, flanked by Cary Grant and Diane Keaton, complaining about eating oysters in the fall. I sipped my wine. Oh, okay, I said. What exactly would that entail? Onorex polished the remainder of her glass in one gulp and patted my knee. You'll figure it out. And with that she was gone, a blur of green felt and Protestant repression, leaving me alone. I'll figure it out, I thought. It's a Brooklyn cafe with a small staff and a limited menu. What could go wrong? Besides, if Onorex, clearly a woman of sound judgment, believes in me, so shall I believe in myself. I began a list of expired products in the walk-in, because list-making seemed a managerial thing to do. The staff were due to arrive any minute, and I would need to break the news of my promotion to them in a direct but diplomatic fashion. I ran to the office and grabbed a red sharpie. On a piece of duct tape, I wrote, Manager, yo, and stuck it to my shirt. I wasn't only hopeful, I was clever. As I headed back upstairs to the dining room, bounce in my step and a song in my heart, I stopped in my tracks at the sound of shattering glass. I ducked around the corner to the storage room, where most of our wine and liquor was stored. Standing among the wreckage of broken wine bottles was Tanisha, my head server. In her left hand, she held an economy-sized trash bag. In her right, a bottle of vodka. She froze. Oh, hey, girl! Hello, Tanisha. Now may not be the time, but I should tell you I have been promoted. I pointed to my name tag. Oh, my God, congratulations! She squealed, dropping the trash bag to pull me into a hug. Truth be told, she was my favorite, and her approval of my impending rise to success meant very much. Pardon me, Tanisha, but I, I must ask, what are you doing with those bottles of liquor, by the way? She rolled her eyes. Oh, don't worry about it. Congrats on the promotion and see you around. Oh, and I don't work here anymore. Confused and slightly alarmed, I watched as she gathered the trash bag, knotted it, and walked upstairs. I followed her, still not sure I could believe what I was seeing, as she strolled out the front door and onto the street where a van with tinted windows was waiting for her. A side door flew open, she tossed in the bag, hopped in, and they sped off. I ran downstairs to find Owner X napping on a discarded banquette. Tanisha just stole half of our liquor inventory. I watched her do it. <laughs> Owner X wiped her eyes and sighed. Oh, I forgot to tell you I fired her. What does Manager Yo mean? My time as manager came to close approximately three days later when I fired myself. I'm not sure if it was the rampant New England alcoholism or the theft, but something told me I, I was not cut out for being in charge of these people. I still do have my name tag, and I'm considering making a series of them for Etsy. Dream big, I say. Dream big or go home. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Dame. Fantastic. You're, you're beautiful, Dame. Front of house. We are uh, going to take a quick break, but we're going to be right back with Tim Ferriss, author of The 4-Hour Chef here on Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to We Can Build You by Huntronic on the Heritage Radio Network.org. We will build you in time, 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 in time. 
And we're back here on the morning after. He's the New York Times best-selling author of The 4-Hour Workweek, The 4-Hour Body, and now The 4-Hour Chef. Tim Ferriss, welcome to the morning after. Thank you for having me. Hey, is it okay if I call you Tim? I know it says Timothy on The 4-Hour Chef. Is that all right? Would you prefer Sir Tim? (laughs) Tim Tim is preferred. I put Timothy on there to sound very professional, but it's really only what I get called if my mom is really angry with me. So Tim is fine. Okay, I, I understand that because I'm I'm a Jess or a Jesse, but it's Jessica if I was really bad. So I, right. I completely yeah. I completely understand that. So I spent the last uh, the last week actually with uh, with your book, and I really truly enjoyed it. And um, I've been carrying it around with me to work. I work in the restaurant industry, and all of my friends in the industry and and colleagues uh, have seen the title of it, and they're like four hour chef. You're right. How how how? What do you imply when you when you title your book the four hour chef? So the the four hour chef in this case, of course, I have this four hour brand at this point, but I use mm-hmm. it in in two senses with this with respect to this book. So the first is using it to imply looking for the shortest path from A to B. So the most uncommon solutions, the fewest number of steps from wherever your starting point is to a certain end goal. The the second point I would say, or the second sense, is that in the domestic section of the book, I worked with a number of uh, culinary school teachers and chefs to try to condense most of the, the primary techniques of culinary school into 15 or so meals that take an average of 9 to 12 minutes to make. So in that case, it's a literal four-hour chef, so about four hours of prep time where you then practice these, these fundamental techniques of culinary school. And I, and but I was... you're not going to become Grand Atkins or someone like that in four hours, and certainly I would, I would never, ever say that. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, ab- absolutely. And, and that's, I was trying to explain to them, I'm like, get into the book, check it out. I mean, it's really more of a manual about learning to learn better, to, to teach yourself to mm-hmm. learn better. And you include, uh, I mean, what I appreciated about it, too, is you, you include some really funny narratives in there, you know, talking to your dad, talking to family members of, about the process, talking to your dad about weight loss and... Uh, I was reading uh, before the show the the little bit about uh, protein, encouraging him to eat. How many ounces of protein was it? It's Bef- it's thirty grams of protein within thirty minutes of right. waking up. So three to three to four whole eggs, but protein shakes tend to be easier. Right. So what's cool is obviously there's you know the culinary scientific facts there, but you've been, you've housed it in a really a funny sort of narrative and adage with a family member, which I think is great because it's I mean it's it's quite a tome. It's. How, I don't. I didn't look at the page number, but it's. I mean, it's like a, a Tolstoy. Six hundred plus. You six hundred plus. Yeah, six hundred plus. Now, yeah, how long did it be, did that take? Definitely intended to be a choose your own adventure guide to rapid learning. And my readers have been asking me for a book on accelerated learning applied to learning languages and sports and basketball, whatever, for a long time. And I just felt like cooking was perfect because. It was one of the skills that had beaten me so many times. I'd quit so many times because it was too time-consuming, too inconvenient, too complex, whatever it might be. And I wanted to showcase how the world's fastest learners learn by going around the world interviewing them, like Daniel Tennant, who learned Icelandic in seven days well enough to get interviewed on TV, and then to apply all of those techniques to the culinary world. And there are a lot of adventures, but like you pointed out, also a lot of misadventures, whether it's you know the New York City food marathon or eating her monster or whatever it might be. But uh, it was a fascinating journey. I mean, I came into it knowing literally nothing about cooking. At, are you, seriously, nothing about cooking? Because I feel like people are defeatist about that. And you said people quit. Uh, you know, they, yeah. They're ready to quit at cooking. They're ready to quit at a language because like, you know, they, they don't feel like they can learn it. So you couldn't even like, cook right. an egg? I, I found cooking to be 
overwhelming because number one, I couldn't sort out the mountain of information that was out there. And then secondly, I needed a, a logical progression for skills as opposed to collections of recipes. And there's nothing wrong with collections of recipes. It just didn't help me feel confident in the kitchen. And the, uh, so what I ended up looking at, for instance, was BJ Fogg at the Persuasion Lab at Stanford University and, and how you actually help people acquire, uh, develop new habits. So, for instance, with fat loss, it's very similar. People fail diets all the time. Why? Because they try to do too many things at once. They try to go to the gym three times a week, change all their meals, change all of this, that, and the other thing. And with cooking, it's the same thing. So, rather than trying to learn how to grocery shop, prep, cook, and clean up at the same time, you order it so that you can tackle one of those at a time. And people end up being really successful. And you mentioned the 30 grams within 30 minutes of waking up. I mean, that's how my dad ended up losing 90 pounds of fat, uh, more wow. than 90 pounds of fat, was not changing his meals, not going to the gym, but starting off for the first month just having a protein shake in the morning. And he went from 5 pounds of average fat loss to 18.75 in the first month. Uh, and I think that it's important. Uh, I enjoy figuring out how to teach things using a path of least resistance. And I think that... Uh, I think that this is you know, one of the first attempts, in English at least, to really look at cooking as a whole and attempt to do that, uh, which, which proved tough. I mean, I tripped and fell a lot, but in, in, in the end, I'm really happy with how it turned out. I mean, obviously, this format is incredibly friendly and conducive to our, our generation of time efficiency and, and getting the biggest bang for your buck in the shortest amount of time, you know, where the generation of the when i say our generation i mean people just that are alive today because this would appeal to anyone honestly because i was flipping through uh before the show and i said to jesse my dad would love this my dad would love this i mean I, i'm enjoying it. i can't wait to to uh investigate it further because i was like me and my dad my dad has a full-time job he's also a gym buff he loves to go to the gym before and his his uh philosophy on cooking has always been well either your mother will do it or you know, while well, just I'll cook an egg and I'll grab something on the road, and it was always a time issue. It wasn't. I don't even. Yeah. I, he wouldn't. He wouldn't admit to this. It was probably also a skill issue, a lack of skill issue. But I feel like th- this. This is such a. Um, it has such a friendly and approachable appeal because it's a big book, but it's not a big cookbook that's going to talk in an overly cerebral language that you can't understand. It's it's right. so it's so approachable. I think it's great. Do, now, do you? Did you follow a similar format? I haven't had a chance to look at the other books with the with the others that you've published. With the Four Hour Body, I followed a, a similar format. I made it uh, very much this choose your adventure format, and I, and I actually <laughs> I use that example because the one of the one of the inventors of the choose your own adventure book series was my next door neighbor growing up. He used to test his books on me and my younger brother. Uh, and I want people to have multiple entry points. What I mean by that is if you take something like diet and exercise, which is very boring at the outset, the reason I talk about, say, you know, 15-minute orgasms and six-pack abs and all this stuff is because I, I have to attract people with that type of thing, and then I can, I can give them what they want but also what they need at the same time. And you have to make it fun, uh, I think, is, is, is one of the things I've realized, that if you want to impact millions of people, you have to make it entertaining. I and mean, that's why there's Calvin and Hobbes in this book. There are guns, there are <laughs> supermodels, whatever it might be. So I want there to be at least one one section of 10 pages that will hook each person who picks that book up. And uh, I, I, and, I, I, can, I yeah. completely understand, you know, the, the, that philosophy, because 
it, it seems to be daunting uh, to look at the book because it's so large, but then you open it up and you're immediately like, what bit do I get to look at next? And, and I really do <laughs> think it's that exciting. Um, what was, I guess, give me your high and your low with the book. What, uh, what really, you know, what you really enjoy doing and what was the most difficult element aside from writing it? Cause I'm sure that was the hardest. Part. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see the most, uh, the most exciting, uh, most frustrating, uh, it was, I think, writing a book, but also learning a new skill has its ups and downs, uh, and being able to predict when you'll have those is really important. But with this book, in the beginning, I found knife skills very, very frustrating. Mm-hmm. I found using a knife properly to be extremely intimidating, extremely frustrating, and I, I've since figured it out, and I have a, an approach for teaching people how to do that, and it's it can be as simple as using a lettuce knife, which actually allows you to pro- uh, practice the proper hand positioning without using something that will cut you, which you can't do with a butter knife, for instance. And so mm-hmm. there are ways of processing that I've borrowed from other places like golf that work really well with knife skills, but that frustrated me a lot. And I think it's true for a lot of people. Uh, the, the, which, and, and knife skills tend to be introduced too early in cookbooks, I think, because uh, it's too scary. It scares people off. But the, the most fun, oh man, I had so much fun. I, when I spent time with uh, Alinea in Chicago, which at the time was ranked number one in the mm-hmm. U.S., and uh, got to play with sous vide, I, I ate, for instance, at a, I believe it's a Michelin two-star restaurant called Aria inside a hotel called Elysian. Mm-hmm. And I had this this sea bass with watercress and a barracuda ham and a few other things. And after my meal, I bought all the raw ingredients, went up to my hotel room, and used just basic sous vide in a Ziploc bag in my yeah, in hotel your, bathroom in your sink. sink, right? I, I, uh, I couldn't right, believe right. that. So I, I was actually talking to a, 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 a colleague of mine, and we were like, he must have kept the water running the whole time. How did you actually, yeah, how did you execute yeah. that? Yeah, you had to keep, I had to keep the water running to maintain about 123, between 123 and 125 degrees, which is perfect for cooking this fish. So it only took maybe 20 minutes to do that. You had to keep it running to maintain the temperature, absolutely. And then the second point, which may or may not be in the book, I think it's in the book, but I put a finishing touch on it using the iron in the closet to, put, to give it a crust on the edge <laughs> to sear it. And then I grabbed some wine and chocolate from a mini bar and had myself a party, but it was great. It turned out really, really well. So that was one of the turning points for me where I really realized this does not have to be complicated. It does not have to be scary. And uh, that, that, was, that was a lot of fun. So uh, that kind of brings me to my next question. I mean, the, the book is not only teaching you or helping you to cook, teaching how to learn better, but it's also almost like a survivor man book, like an outdoor book. And, and yeah. you know, the, the being so practical as to use an iron to, to get a crust on your fish. I mean, I, I think that kind of sums up your, your outdoorsy side. I was about to say, <laughs> I, would, I would like to, uh, to edit my answer to the age-old question, who would you like to be stranded on a desert island with? And I believe I would like it to be you. <laughs> well, I, I think we would yeah, eat well. I, I spent a lot of time when in the wild section of the book. Uh, the science section of the book is pretty, pretty, pretty fun as well. But in the wild section, when I'm trying to reconnect with ingredients uh, outside of the kitchen and learn how to cook, whether it's like hobos or to cook on a spit or acorn pancakes, whatever it might be, really foraging and hunting for the first time also was a real eye-opening experience for me. Uh, it's I, I just realized more than ever going through all that entire process how utterly unprepared I was and how utterly unprepared most people are for any kind of 
disaster like Hurricane Sandy uh, or look at earthquakes in San Francisco. I mean, in 1989 in Loma Prieta earthquake, people went, some people went without power and water for seven to ten days. And uh, after doing all this research, I immediately went to Costco. It's definitely worth everyone, whether they get the book or not, to go to Costco, spend two hours there on a weekend and get water and, and canned food. <laughs> Get extra water, camp food, maybe a sleeping bag, and uh, it, it was huge, a huge eye opener to look at some of that stuff. And and you did touch on the, the science side of it. Um, we had Nathan Mirvold on the show uh, when the Modernist Cuisine came out, and I know you touch on that that molecular gastronomy, and you, you actually got to have dinner with him. Um, cool. Do you feel like the? Do you feel like that's kind of a, a theme that's going to be in cookbooks from now on? Is that a is that a modern thing? Is that something that the everyday cook can approach? Can 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 try to do these scientific experiments with food? I think I think they can approach it, but I, I think it I think it scares off more people than it attracts. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I I included it because I think it's it's it will attract a certain segment of the population who may not be attracted to the other parts of the book. Uh, but the other, the other reason that I wanted to present it is I think it's, it's a very, it's a very uh, effective Trojan horse for teaching science without making people panic about studying science like they mm-hmm. did in organic chemistry in high school or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to look at, at the science of food <clears throat> from the standpoint of not necessarily adding a lot of fancy powders and potions, but even using, let's say, uh, browning or the Maillard reaction, like what does it mean when you actually sear a steak? Okay, well, if you want to get the perfect sear on a steak, that Maillard reaction, then you, it has to be low moisture. So, for instance, one of the best ways to make the perfect steak is very counterintuitive. You're always told, you know, get the meat to room temperature, get the meat to room temperature. But if you put it in the freezer for 45 minutes and mm-hmm. pat it dry first, you evaporate all of the surface moisture more effectively than anywhere else in the house, and then you sear it really quickly, uh, and then you throw it in the oven at 200 degrees. I mean, it's, <laughs> so it's by understanding some of the science, just a little bit, just a tiny amount, you can get better results in the kitchen, and I think that is where you can make it really attractive to people. And yeah, and, and I think that that is a completely useful tool to, to remind people that this is science. You know, cooking is a science in, in, in a way. Um, so I, I was very jealous of your, uh, your, your New York food marathon that you did, uh, which I, I don't know if I could actually uh, execute, uh, considering I don't think I could eat that much. Um, but, uh, but, but uh, you know, one of my employers, Marco Canora, has was super uh you you absolutely like highlighted him in the book and i love that you went to hearth and i love that you went to terroir um and you you did mention that you think hearth is the the most underrated restaurant in new york city how did you come to that conclusion uh of of the restaurants i visited of course i didn't visit all of the however many it is what twenty three thousand restaurants in, in the greater york area <laughs> sure but i i just looking at what mark has done and how unerringly consistent he is and how well trained is impeccable from a technical standpoint mm-hmm. in the classics and you look at his track record and that craft when it was best in restaurant james beard winner He's he's very understated in a lot of ways, and I just I feel like uh, that restaurant has not received its due. I I really believe that wholeheartedly, and I that is one of not just my opinion, but the opinion of, of quite a few people. Uh, 
uh, I've, I've ended up spending time with in the, in the chef world. And there are other restaurants, of course, that are I, I think equally amazing, but they've got they're they're more in the spotlight, like ABC Kitchen, Dan book as well. That both of them uh, at the lunch dinner cooking dishes, which is fantastic. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I, I think Hearth is very underrated. I think it's super underrated. There's uh, another example in San Francisco, for instance, Saison, uh, S-A-I-S-O-N, is one of the best restaurants. I've had every meal I've had at Saison has been one of the best meals I've ever had. And I've taken the most cynical restaurateurs, people who have 15 restaurants, and walk in prepared to hate everything, come away, putting on Twitter, like, just had one of the top three meals of my life at Saison SF. <laughs> and I think that people can have that same experience at heart. So I'm just trying to give them a, a little bit more to drive, drive a little bit more attention to it because uh, I'm more of a, maybe a showman than, than Marco is. Well, I, you know, I was going to say that, that one of my favorite things about Marco is that he's, he's very humble and he's very simple. He's like, I'm a cook. I'm not an artist. This is, this is, this yeah. is uh, my craft. Um, and, and you know what? I know that you know, you're maybe more showman, but I, I really did feel like you were pretty humble in your book. And, um, and I appreciate that, especially someone who works in the restaurant industry, who definitely struggles with the cooking side of things. Um, and this was kind of the first thing I could approach that, um, that, that made sense to me and that, wow, you're, you, you're, you're giving me tasks that, that make sense. And, um, and I, and I feel like I can logically, um, you know, execute, execute what you've asked. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Tim. Um, let us know where we can buy the book and, and where people can follow you. Yeah, I'm, you all, you just made my day. So, so thank you very much. Uh, the, the book can, uh, it's being, because it's the first big book out of Amazon publishing, it's being boycotted by all the Barnes and Nobles around the country. So you're probably best off going to Amazon.com and getting the book. I think the, the Kindle edition, the print, I think is worth it. It's, it was made to be beautiful, thousand plus photos and whatnot. But get, yeah, get the print. It, yeah, it feels good to hold this thing. I'll get the print. And you're doing, a, I, I saw on, on your blog, you're doing an abandoned bookstores offer. You're kind of challenging fans of yours to, to, sell your, to sell your book, correct? Yeah, yeah, it does some really fun stuff. If people want to see a bunch of behind-the-scenes content and a sample of the book and videos and whatnot as well, I'm doing a partnership with BitTorrent. So if you just search BitTorrent and uh, Tim Ferriss, you'll find that. That's, that's tons of free material. But people can find me at uh, 4hourchef.com, just all spelled out, 4 Chef. Um, and they can also find me uh, on Twitter at T Ferris, T F E R R I S S. Well, thank you so much, Tim, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. And and anytime you're you're in New York City, come and visit me at Terroir. Yeah, I might or- take you guys on the food marathon. It's worth it. Twenty six iconic dishes in twenty six locations in twenty four hours. I think you can do it. It's gotta I'm happen. Down. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and yeah, if you're I'm going York- on a liquid diet right now to prepare. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> You know, come in studio. Absolutely. Thank Tim, you, Tim. All right. Tim Ferriss, Thanks thank so you much. so much. Bye-bye. We'll be right back on The Morning After with Phil Colicchio. You're listening to Baldy by Huntronic on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Wake up, wake up. 
cup of tea What would you do without me? Stand up, stand up all day You'd be born without me Get up, get up all day Where would you be without me? Joe, your computer is so slow, I can't even use this thing. Yeah, I should probably get a new one. Do you have any suggestions? Oh, totally, man. You should go to TechServe. Okay, what's so good about TechServe? Well, they've got this awesome new insider program that's free when you get a new Mac with Apple Care. So you should buy your computer there because you get 50% off data transfer, free loaner computers, front-of-the-line repair privileges, an annual Mac tune-up service, backup consultation and setup, seminars, and much more. Okay, yeah, where's TechServe? It's at uh, 119 West 23rd Street in New York City. They're New York's premier authorized Apple reseller and service provider. And you should totally check out TechServe.com for more information. All right, that settles it. I'm headed to TechServe. This is The Morning After on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Jesse Kiefer, in studio with Phil Colicchio. Welcome, Phil. Hi, Jess. How are you? Good to see you. He is uh, the host of The Business of the Business here on Heritage Radio Network. He's also an attorney, also an investor. He's a man about town. Wow. Um, You know, my my daughter uh, recently said that uh, one of her friends calls me the most interesting man in the world. And I like think, the Dos Equis guy. Yeah, cool. except I, I think that's because she hangs around and I buy dinner. <laughs> so I think that's why I got that. Title. I would hang around with you too if I was her <laughs> age. Um, so, so Phil, you you are an attorney, and we were just talking earlier about how yeah. how you got yourself involved in the restaurant hospitality industry. Can you just kind of let us know? Sure. Um, how you got going? Well, like a lot of restaurateurs, the industry found me. I didn't find it. Um, I never went looking to become a, a hospitality uh, professional uh, or an attorney representing rock star chefs or an attorney who worked with hotels and resorts. I never aspired to any of that. What kind of law were you were you thinking you were going to practice? Yeah, well, I, I well when I started because I was a blue collar kid, I thought I was going to be a, 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 a union lawyer and really help you know the working guy. And when I got out of law school. Um, I really found out that that maybe the best way to help the working guy wasn't to be a union lawyer, but maybe it was to understand financial transactions and and unwind bad things. So I I got to work as a young lawyer uh, doing what's now known as, as workouts, but I did them on larger leases and things like that. Um, so I, I found that I found that very interesting and very rewarding. That led me to a, a, a job for with one of my clients who, now it's a dirty word, but back then um, they were doing great things for the country, and that was Freddie Mac. Oh, wow. Yeah, Freddie Mac. Um, I worked for, for Freddie Mac in Washington for, for a few years, and I helped them with their, their apartment building portfolio, which had a lot of defaults back then. And... 
interestingly enough, that, that's what, what actually tied me into the hospitality industry because I spent a lot of time in New York. And in New York was this other guy who then had curly hair and, and blue eyes and was working in restaurants, my cousin Tom. And so the more I would come to New York, the more time I would spend at wherever Tom was working mm-hmm. after I was finished working. Mm-hmm. And I, I learned a little bit about food and a little about wine that way. Um, I was very naive because when he would send plates up for tastings, mm-hmm. I thought it was food that other people like ordered and didn't want. I had no idea. That, that he was just actually trying to, to I, give you an incredible experience. Yeah, I had no idea. I was, very, I was totally naive about it all. So the and wine, I would, if I would taste wine, it would be because I always thought it was because someone sent it back. But it was the bartenders letting me taste different things. I was, is this the interaction that you've always had with Tom, where he's like, you feel like he's like just giving you whatever was left over or something? No, we, you know, we didn't have, we had a real regular guy relationship. Um... And I didn't know anything about fine dining. I didn't know that that was the way it was done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I thought I was eating mistakes, but it turns out that I was, I was, I was getting my palate educated. <laughs> That's great. And so you, we were talking earlier um, that, that when, when Tom was at, at Gramercy, um, yeah. that's kind of when you, you, you started to look at paperwork for him or you started to, to kind of help him out in... Uh, you know, in, in, in a legal way. Oh, yeah. That's, you know, I, I helped him a couple of times before that. When his first, his first um, executive chef job, was, where he really got attention, was at a restaurant that no longer exists called Mondrian. Mm-hmm. And the New York Times wrote him a three-star review when he was still in his 20s, which was, wow. re- that's really what, you know, really uh-huh. what catapulted Tom to... Um, you know, to being really one of the best chefs in the world. Mm-hmm. And he's only improved since then. And, and, and forget all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. As a chef, he still walks very tall. Um, but when, when Gramercy Tavern was really flourishing, um, and, you know, it was, it was the Tom Colicchio and Danny Meyer show. Mm-hmm. Um, but they began to have different visions. And it, it became like, it became, unfortunately, like a divorce. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I assisted Tom through the business aspects of that divorce with mm-hmm. the idea that those, those two created a child, a beautiful child, mm-hmm. that really had to be respected and maintained because that child was, was still growing up. And that was Gramercy Tower. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think, yeah, I just had a Kevin, Kevin Mahan on, and I think it's like 18 years old or 19 yeah, years old Yeah, I think Kevin's been there close to the, if not the beginning, right, said right thir- close. 13 years. Yeah, So, yeah. I mean, that's a solid amount of time. So, yep. so with this, you know, helping through the divorce, yep. um, was that really what, what kind of brought you into the hospitality restaurant kind of law scene? Exactly. The, the, the reason was because out of... That, you know, that that painful transition came a couple of really amazing things. Craft mm-hmm. restaurant came out of that, and um, Eleven Madison uh, Park restaurant came out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and your current position actually is sure. sort of a grandchild sure. of, of, of that. Yes, 
And, um, you know, that was when other people saw that Tom still kept his relationship at Gramercy Tavern strong, but he was out doing other things. They, they would say, well, how did you do that? And how did you structure that? And, mm-hmm. and very kindly, he, he would say, call Phil. <laughs> um, and, you know, Tom's business acumen has, has grown a thousand percent. Um, since he started, and it's been great to see that that growth because now he's he's equally a businessman as as he is a chef. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what got me started, um, you know. And and I've represented a lot of big names, um, some of you know some of whom who've gone on to great things, others who have just gone on, <laughs> and. Um, uh, and I moved a little bit from that into uh, not just representing individual chefs, but then in de- uh, representing restaurant groups mm-hmm. and investors mm-hmm. in structuring their investments within restaurants. And then hotels who needed to contract with chefs and restaurateurs to bring in third-party food and beverage expertise. Mm-hmm. And then developments and then resorts. So it, it's been an extraordinary ride. It's only expanded from, yeah. from where you started. So when when a new restaurant is opened, when a new hotel is opened that you've been a huge part of, you know, I, I know that the the chef or the hotelier, they, they get the recognition, but I imagine you still feel like a sense of pride. Like, this is my place too. Like, this is something that I helped create. I feel incredible pride about that. Um, and And... You know, being that this is the hospitality industry, mm-hmm. my, you know, my role, uh, if I do my job well, is really never forgotten. I'm treated really well when I, you know, when I go there um, to, to any place that I helped to put together the bones of, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, I, I know what my role is. It's kind of like the role of, a, of, a, of an umpire sometimes in a really big game where you just you don't want to be the center of attention you Mm -hmm. want to get it done and you want to make sure the game gets played crisply and the way it was meant to be played Mm -hmm. so you just do your job you you've got a role you know and i i know what my role is in those transactions but you also get to feel the pride and and the creativity i think uh, i think an umpire feels a great deal of pride when a great game is over and nobody talks about a blown call or something like <laughs> sure. that. So yeah, so you can't I can't blame the lawyer, right? Right. <laughs> I want to make sure that uh, that it seems like it's a seamless transaction. That's that's the way I go about it. So um, so what advice do you have to to new restaurateurs or people who are kind of jumping into uh, in, into their their first restaurant endeavor? Uh, what advice do you have from from your business standpoint? Uh, luckily, that's an easy one. And Don't it, do it. It is no, no, no. Well, that's a joke that I tell people, and when they come to my office and tell me what they want to do, I, I usually scratch out a, a quick note on a piece of paper that says, "Phil Calicchio told me not to do this," and if they <laughs> sign it, I'll continue to talk to them. Um, but really, what a, a, a new restaurateur needs is a is a strong, capable, experienced professional team Mm -hmm. that's a that is a a support system and by that i'm not talking about a sous chef and i'm not talking about a beverage director i'm saying understand 
make sure you've, you've got a good real estate broker. Mm-hmm. Make sure you've got a good insurance broker if we haven't, if we've learned one thing over the past couple of weeks as a result of this storm. Insurance coverage is a huge component that is often overlooked in the restaurant industry because this industry is unique. It, it, it's, you don't rely on, you don't get paid 30 or 60 days after you serve a meal. Mm-hmm. You get paid now. Mm-hmm. And so the business model is set up in a way that's, that, that means ca- cash transactions, daily transactions, are, are really what make the business move. So losing a week is not like, it's not losing a week. It's losing two months. So I, I say make sure you've got your insurance in place. Make sure you have a good lawyer. Mm-hmm. You know, make sure you have a lawyer who, who's got some understanding of the industry because inevitably you're going to need a lawyer for something as you go down the line. I mean, I, I, yeah, I feel like as a chef doesn't always equal businessman. Gosh, no. As and a matter of fact, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's often just the opposite because, I mean, we're all multitaskers, but, but the opening of the restaurant, you know, if, if the business component isn't taken care of, the restaurant will open and close. Mm-hmm. So doesn't so, matter how good the food is. And so in your show, The Business of the Business, is this kind of a, a topic that you're, you're constantly touching upon? Regularly. Regularly. Um, and, and thanks for bringing up the, the business of the business. I'm having a, a really great time doing it here on the Heritage Radio Network. Um, I will say to you this, that I, I try to focus less and less on, on sort of the everyday mechanics of mm-hmm. restaurants because it, it comes up in every conversation I have. But I want to make sure that I, I, I let people know how much respect I have for the discipline that's required to, to take care of your business on a day-to-day basis, the, the ballet that is required. You know, that for as, simply, as simple as I'd like my hamburger done medium rare. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an amazing process, what goes on just to set that moment up and then to deliver the experience. You There's wouldn't a, believe how many elements yes, are in between. It, it's, a, it's a ballet of, of you know, uh, sometimes of epic proportion. Absolutely. Well, Phil, it's been so great to have you on the show. Thank you, Jess. This is The Morning After on Heritage Radio Network. Let's get a beer. <laughs> Let's do it. You're listening to Paradigm Shift by Huntronic on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Back here on the morning after on Heritage Radio Network. If you like what you're hearing today, 
Uh, you can check out many of our other shows. We have several amazing programs on the network. You can check it out at heritageradionetwork.org. If you're interested further, you can also become a member, which we highly encourage because it's a sexy little benefits package. Uh, speaking of other shows, you were just listening before the break to our good friend, Phil Colicchio, host of The Business of the Business, which you can hear Wednesdays at 5 p.m. here on our Heritage Radio Network. Jesse Kiefer, it's been a pleasure as always. Jen Tullock, it's been a pleasure. Everybody take care, stay safe, and good luck on those post-Thanksgiving diets. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.